Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. How costly will the Greenbelt gaffe be for Premier Doug Ford? There's a new program for Canadian vets who suffer from PTSD. We highlight the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Women's soccer is in the spotlight again. And Usher will play the Super Bowl. The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Provincial government still recovering from its green belt gaffe. The question now is, Premier Doug Ford's flip-flop on developing the green belt haunt him and the Conservatives in the next election? As a first step to earn back your trust, I'll be reversing the changes we made and won't make any changes to the green belt in the future. He said that once before, didn't he? By the way, we're welcoming you back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML and remind you that voters won't cast their ballots in a provincial election until 2026. So this issue is going to be percolating over the next three years, I would imagine, or two and a half years. Wayne Petrosi is a professor emeritus of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University and joins us now on GMH. Wayne, good morning. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How about you? I am pretty good. How damaging do you think this Greenbelt flip-flop has been on the Doug Ford brand, which up until now has been relatively bulletproof? Uh, I think the damage is, is severe. And what it makes the greater risk is that I don't think we're done hearing the story. I think there are more uh, truths to be revealed about what happened, about how... It, a junior political staffer could develop and move through cabinet a proposal to remove those lands without anyone knowing in the premier's office or the cabinet office or any of the senior ministers involved sitting around the table when that decision was approved. I think you're 100% right and we should not forget that there's also an RCMP investigation that's ongoing and who knows, this could this could force an election before 2026. Well, it certainly means that the issue is not going to go away anytime soon. I mean, one of the, the more, I think, uh, disheartening uh, aspects of the, of the resignation last week of, of yet another minister was it indicates that this didn't just happen in the last couple of months. Unless you want to accept as coincidence that the, the developer who was taking minister and staff to Vegas three years before that that was just happenstance. Ford has repeatedly said, and he mentioned this, I believe, on Friday in his news conference as well, which party do you trust with your finances when it comes to the next election? And, you know, the the who do you trust more, in, in my view, might be a mistake for Ford to be playing that trust card right now. Well, I, I can understand where he's coming from. Uh, he, he has constantly uh, put forward his party as the party of fiscal probity. But, you know, the irony is, is that's what's taken the big hit in, in the Greenbelt issue. They're not fiscally wise. Uh, otherwise, you wouldn't turn over billions of dollars of, of, of anticipated profits to a group of developers. 
Wayne Petrosi is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Wayne is a professor emeritus of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. And we're talking about the Greenbelt's land swap flip-flop that uh, Premier Doug Ford and his conservatives have found themselves in. Uh, NDP leader Marit Stiles has certainly hammered away at Ford and the conservatives. The provincial liberals, however, who are in the midst of choosing a new leader later on this year, have been relegated to the sidelines. How big of a missed opportunity is it for the Liberals not to be involved in this? Well, I I think you're yes, it would be preferable if they had someone sitting in the leader's uh, chair as we speak, so that they could could take part in in profiling their strengths versus the weaknesses of the government. But I, as I said, I think the good news is whoever they select as leader, I think the issue will still be on a low boil when they take up their position. And they'll have opportunity to make a point and to give an impression to the public about how they're different from the current government. Premier was asked uh, last week if this scandal was on par with the gas plan scandal that uh, in part brought down the Liberals the last time around. Uh, and he said no. Um, your thoughts on that? Well, I think, in fact, it's, it's, it's much worse. I mean, this strikes at the very center of the Ontario government. This was not the, the, here's this is a case, like I said, of of the cabinet office, the premier's office, senior ministers, all of them culpable and all of them denying any role in what transpired. So the mountain, uh, so the, it's almost a series of cascading mistruths that have been spouted uh, along the way. And now they are being slowly like a drip being unpacked. And I think they'd have been better off, Mr. Ford would have, if he had simply come out and said, explained exactly how that came to pass, instead of putting a young staffer under, throwing a young staffer under the bus in the first instance, and then just allowing it to slowly bleed out. Yeah, not a good strategy for sure, Wayne. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome. Wayne Petrosi is a professor emeritus of politics and public administration with Toronto Metropolitan University, offering his thoughts on the Doug Ford Greenbelt gaffe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I made a promise to you that I wouldn't touch the Greenbelt. I broke that promise. And for that, I'm very very sorry. Phil Pothin is the Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defence and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Phil, good morning. How are you? I'm fine. Uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's good to see the first step in uh, starting to clean up uh, the messes of this tainted uh, ministry, and we hope there's more to go. I would imagine you and, and others are breathing a sigh of relief. Uh, yes, uh, partially, but we have to remember, you know, the Greenbelt removals were obviously the most egregious spoke in the eye here in terms of an outright uh, breach of the government's promises. But it's really just uh, the Greenbelt removals were just the tip of a uh, big, dirty iceberg of uh, decisions that were all premised on the same uh, logic that has now been discredited entirely, and that is this claim that uh, our housing shortages were in some way uh, related to a shortage of land from housing. It, that's been completely discredited now, 
And unfortunately, there are a bunch of other decisions, like uh, the forced boundary expansions in Hamilton, uh, the intentional watering down of density rules in uh, in in the uh, growth plan for the Greater Golden Horseshoe, uh, the stripping of conservation authorities' power to keep development out of floodplains, uh, and uh, you know, Bill 23, which is you know removed regional planning. All of these things are fruit of the same poison tree, the same tainted ministry that uh, produced the green belt removals. They have also been discredited, unfortunately for the government, it, because of its real uh, overstepping on the green belt. But you know, now we know that all of those decisions were also fruits of this uh, process and this this, this uh, thinking that's been discredited. We know now the only way to fix the housing shortage is to build homes within existing built-up areas using uh, infrastructure that we already have and using compact form, because now we know that uh, the real shortage, the cause of the housing shortage, it, all, housing production is being throttled by uh, a shortage of labor, equipment, and materials. And that was that, that pushes further outwards is actually likely to slow down housing production. Yeah, and that was really outlined in the Housing Affordability Task Force. And even after that report was issued, which I think had 55 recommendations, the Ford government still said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to build on the green belt because this is, this is how we're going to build these one and a half million homes over the next 10 years. All the while, we have a ton of space within municipalities, as you mentioned, that are serviced or at least close to services. They have, they're on transit routes. I mean, this was a no-brainer from the start. Uh, absolutely. And so, you know, the, the frustration... Uh, for the government, I think, was that they hoped that they had handpicked the Housing Affordability Task Force and that the, the Housing Affordability Task Force could be counted on to tell them everything they wanted to hear. And while the task force wasn't perfect, they were not corrupt. You know what I mean? So they, uh, they told the truth, which is that adding more land wasn't going to help and that, you know, the real issue was... Uh, you know, r rules which prevented these existing sites and existing neighborhoods from being uh, used to build the housing that we need. And so uh, they didn't get what they want, and they were brazen enough to try and push through these changes, both the uh, forced boundary expansions uh, in Hamilton and other municipalities and the Greenbelt removals after they were told that there was enough land. We have a report. Very clearly, uh, it shows, and this is this is how the the uh, Housing Affordability Task Force got to a decision. But there are 350 square kilometers of greenfield land. That's not just outside of existing neighborhoods. It, you know, it's within existing settlement areas, but it's been sitting unused uh, and outside of existing neighborhoods uh, for many years. And on top of that, we have this immense capacity to build housing within existing neighborhoods that will actually make neighborhoods better places to live. Because most of the communities that the Golden Horseshoe has built after uh, the Second World War, they haven't been built with enough density to allow you to walk anywhere, to get anywhere uh, by public transit without a lot of inconvenience. Those are all problems that need to be fixed by adding more homes the streets that are currently uh, restricted to uh, lower-density housing. And rather than fixing that problem, the government 
chose and is, and is still choosing with things like the forest boundary expansion to divert the scarce construction capacity. We need to fix that problem uh, to its friend's pet project uh, uh, of, uh, of sprawl development. Got to stop. All of those things, the green, the, the green belt removals have been reversed, but we need the forest boundary expansions, the um, changes to uh, the growth plan for the Golden Horseshoe, uh, Bill 23, which includes both the conservation authorities being stripped of power uh, and uh, uh, the, the uh, attacks on regional planning, all of those things need to be reversed. Uh, we said very clearly the first step on the road to clearing this government's uh, reputation was reversing the Greenbelt removals, and that's right. There are a lot of other steps to go. We've got to see it through to the end. That is a laundry list of things to do, whether or not we get any of them done or the government gets any done. That, that remains to be seen. Phil, we'll leave it there. Appreciate your time as always this morning. Thank you so much. Phil Pothin, Ontario Environment Program Manager with Environmental Defense, as the Greenbelt gaffe continues to haunt this uh, provincial government. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a new program that's been created to help Canadian veterans who are suffering from PTSD and other mental health challenges, boots on the grounds, community mental health care providers, and Brock University all gathering together to host a wellness day, which is coming up on Saturday, October the 21st, so nearly a month from now, and it's going to be held at Brock University. And that will be followed up by a 12-week mindfulness program online to support veteran mental health. This is a a win-win-win. Dr. Tiffany Hunt is a psychologist and adjunct professor of education at Brock University. And Sean Mahara is a veteran from the Hamilton area. And both Sean and Tiffany join us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. How are you? Morning, morning. great. Thank you. Hey, Sean, if if you don't mind, Sean, we'll start with you. Just tell us your story with... Being a veteran, PTSD, and how a program like this helps. Sure. Uh, it. Uh, I got diagnosed in about 99. I was in Bosnia in 95 and uh, struggled for years. But since I started doing these types of treatments, it's really another uh, big tool in my tool belt. Dr. Hunt, how important is a program like this to get people like Sean and others who are going through PTSD and get them back on the right track? Yeah, I think it's really important uh, in terms of community reintegration. I know a lot of veterans uh, struggle, right, like to get back and connected in the community. It's kind of that loss of camaraderie. And then, you know, throw COVID into the mix and everyone's feeling a little bit disconnected in general. So what's unique about this program is we have the peer support element. So we have veterans with lived experience, not only in the military, but also with these different modalities that include sound healing, breath work, yoga. And we're really hoping it's just a way to help vets reconnect with one another, but reconnect with themselves on physical, mental, and emotional levels. Sean, was that reconnection a big struggle, a big roadblock for you? Definitely, definitely. For years, uh, it's uh, it's tough when you're kind of in the fight or flight. You're not really having a lot of uh, cognitive thought, so it's, it's very hard to even figure out what's wrong at the beginning. Dr. Hunt, is there a common denominator for veterans or other first responders? Let, let's put them in this category as well, that they get to a point where they are disconnected. And, and how do you reconnect? That that must be tough. Absolutely. And I think, you know, 
you know, whether you're a veteran or first responder, you're just in professions where there's high volume or the potential for high volume trauma exposure, right? And I mean, ultimately, that stuff is going to impact you, right? You can only compartmentalize or put that stuff away for so long. So this is what's great is we have people, I feel like we've got a real team of authentic individuals, right, who are prepared to kind of share their stories, connect, and just open up about how this has helped them. And I think, you know, it's just important coming in with an open mind, because if you're looking for different results, you got to do something different. And this program is definitely different. This new program has been created to help Canadian veterans who are suffering from PTSD and other mental health challenges. And there is a wellness day that is set for Saturday, October the 21st at Brock University. It's followed by a 12-week mindfulness program online to support veteran mental health. Sean, I would assume that you're going to encourage many veterans and others to take in this program. Yes, definitely. Uh, I'm I'm pushing it on all my friends and hopefully they show up. Is there a reluctance on the part of other veterans to, to get involved like this? Maybe they think, ah, there's nothing wrong with me. Yeah, definitely. Everyone's got to come to their point where they, where they are sick of the, you know, the correct, all the shit that goes on with it, sorry, and uh, just want to try and get better. For you, what was that aha moment to say, all right, I need to jump into this? Um, I had a couple. I guess one of them was my wife telling me that I better do it or else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when the wife lays down the hammer, you better listen. That is, that is for sure. Dr. Yes. Hunt, how can people register for this Wellness Day and the 12-week program? Sure. We do have a website. It's www.comradesinwellbeing.com. So they're welcome to go online, check out a little bit more about the program and register there. And there's also links through Boots on the Ground as well that you can check out their website and there's a direct link for more information. What kind of response are you anticipating to get? I think we're hoping we have spots for up to 20 veterans to participate. So we are open to as many who want to come, and we're hoping to run this program again in the future. And obviously, I'm, I'm going to guess, Dr. Hunt, that this isn't a cookie-cutter approach because you're dealing with different individuals with a different set of uh, circumstances that they've been through, that this is really a tailor-made program for them. Is that accurate? It really is, and that's what's really nice about having the peer supports and the spear the speakers panels with the peers, right? Because it's an opportunity, like I said, for the vets to share, you know, their lived experiences in the military uh, with these modalities as well. So there's definitely a relatable component. Sean, last one for you. I know your message to other veterans is to, you know, get out and participate, but you, you got to be all in as well, right? Yes, yes, definitely. But, uh, you know, at the beginning, it's just uh, progress, not perfection. Absolutely. That's a good point. Dr. Hunt, you want to jump on that? Yeah. And I think it's, you know, like I was saying earlier, if you want different results, it's important to try something different. And I know for a lot of people, you know, when you make kind of those big connections, 
it's when you do a little bit of uncomfortable work first, right? Mm -hmm. So whether it's therapy or trying something different like yoga or breath work, if you're looking for a shift or a transformation, it's a little bit of uncomfortable work and small steps, right? Just like Sean said, it's progress, not perfection. Sean and Dr. Hunt, thanks for the time. Uh, good luck with the Wellness Day on October 21st and of course the uh, mindfulness program following after. Thanks for the time this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sean Mahar is a veteran from the Hamilton area. Dr. Tiffany Hunt, psychologist, adjunct professor of education at Brock University. You can register for this Wellness Day, again, Saturday, October 21st at Brock, and the 12-week mindfulness program online uh, at comradesinwellbeing.com. Again, that website, comradesinwellbeing.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This coming Saturday is the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And uh, all week long, we thought it would be important to share stories from Indigenous peoples as we get ready to observe the third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The first one was held uh, back in 2021. And it is um, observed in conjunction with Orange Shirt Day, which is September 30th, that honors the children who survived uh, the residential schools and remember those who did not, of course. Cher Odebaya is a local filmmaker, author, speaker, and advocate for the arts, an Ojibwe and Mohawk of the Turtle Clan from Six Nations, Ontario, with roots in Alderville, First Nation, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Cher, good morning. How are you? Hello, good morning. I'm wonderful, thank you. We are all, of course, going to be listening and learning on Saturday, and we should do this all the time, not just one day of the year. What are you most looking forward to as this week progresses into the Day for Truth and Reconciliation? I think just the sharing and the awareness and also the curiosity from those around us that are now have reached a place in my lifetime. It's not something that people were curious about, but we've now sort of elevated to this place in time where people are curious and I deeply enjoy that. And so these special days are reminders for people to step forth. And I love what you said that it's not just one day, it's year round. I mean, how do you on your own want to move forward with reconciliation? What does that look like for you? That kind of stuff. Yeah. What, what what does it normally look like for people? Because I, I think there's people in, in the community and, and I myself, you know, think of, you know, what can I do apart from listening and learning? Is there other things we can get involved in? Yeah, I always like to tell people to hop online and Google the 94 calls to action and see which one of them resonates with you. And then what within the scope of your power can you step into or towards that would really lend towards that? And I like that they're called they're not suggestions, they're calls to action, really powerful stuff. And they spent years really um, sort of sifting through it and cycling through it. And so it's really great information. The calls to action. Yeah, just Google those. September 30th, also Orange Shirt Day. And each and every year we see more and more orange shirts. They're being sold in stores. They're at fairs like the Ancaster Fair over the weekend with, with crafters uh, getting in and, and helping spread the word. Uh, what a tribute it, it is to residential school survivor Phyllis Webstead. When you see that orange shirt, especially on Saturday, what comes to mind? Oh, that's a great question. Um, first of all, I do think of Phyllis and her story. It is a really great story. And it, it's super sad as well. And the fact that it's gotten to this place where people are now honoring that orange shirt that Phyllis never got to see again mm -hmm. because she was put into this uniform and she was so happy and proud to go to school and wear that shirt. And so there was a lot of, I guess, 
trickery that was happening at that time and and a lot of unknowing. So um, maybe almost like a switch and bait kind of thing. Come and get this. You're going to get this. But then, you know, it just we all know what happened. There's ended up being a graveyard at schools, which is crazy. Yeah. Cher Obadiah is a local filmmaker, author, speaker, and advocate for the arts, Ojibwe and Mohawk of the Turtle Clan from Six Nations, Ontario, with roots in Alderville First Nation, and is going to be uh, among everyone in this nation to honor National Day for Truth and Reconciliation this coming Saturday. Apart from Saturday, I do want to shine a spotlight on you. What are, what are you up to these days? So on Thursday, we're doing a show at the Westdale Theater. So they are have been really wonderful allies in terms of reconciliation. What can we do, Cher? What, what can we put together? The community is curious. And so I've curated a show um, called Raise the Feather, which is an honoring. And so it's about storytelling. And we're going to have a real mixture and something for everyone. And I really wanted it to be a balance of strong male, strong female, having a youth aspect, and then having music. And so we're going to have poetry, we're going to have acoustic, and we're going to have those young drummers and, and what it is to be raised in the culture, really strong youth. I'm really proud for people to come out and experience it. What time on Thursday and how can people get tickets? It is online. You can go to the uh, the Westdale Theater. Just Google the Westdale Theater. And it's also on my webpage, Share Obadiah. You can go click the link there. Um, it's at 7 p.m. It'll be an hour and a half of just absolute immersement into storytelling and the culture and the richness of it. And yeah, people are going to have a really great time. I'm really excited about it. Well, that's I even have the chief. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Uh, that's going to be happening on the West Day, at the Westdale Thursday night at 7. It's called Raise the Feather. Cher, mm -hmm. uh, it sounds wonderful. Looking forward to seeing it. Thanks for the time today, and uh, we'll talk to you down the road. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Cher Obadiah, local filmmaker, author, speaker, advocate for the arts, Ojibwe and Mohawk of the Turtle Clan from Six Nations, Ontario, with roots in Alderville First Nation. Check it out. Raise the Feather at the Westdale online, thewestdale.ca. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It could be a fantastic night, Tuesday night, and an even better Wednesday morning, I would think as the Canadian women's national soccer team will be back in action. Because last week in Kingston, Jamaica, the Canadian women blanked Jamaica 2-0 in the first of a two-leg playoff, where the winner is going to clinch a spot in the 2024 Olympics in Paris. So tomorrow night, second leg at a sold-out BMO field in Toronto, Canada could book and will probably, fingers crossed, book its ticket to the 2024 Olympics. Um... Also with that, there is a new professional women's soccer league that is taking shape as we speak. And in just a few short years' time, this thing, again, knock on wood, is going to be launching and producing the stars of tomorrow. Here to talk about it is Diana Matheson, Olympic bronze medalist and CEO and co-founder of Project 8. Diana, good morning. How are you? Hi, morning. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Hey, first off on Canada beating Jamaica last week and, and looking to clinch tomorrow. And, you know, that was their first game since the World Cup in Australia and New Zealand. And I thought they performed marvelously. 
Yeah, it was a it was a fun game. Bev Priestman brought a few changes to the lineup. She uh, brought a few new ideas, um, which looked like uh, kind of Canada 2.0 out of the Women's World Cup. So it was an exciting start to this two leg qualification against Jamaica. Yeah, it was fun to watch in uh, game two tomorrow in Toronto. Right. Let's talk about this Women's Professional League, which you are spearheading with a number of others. And where are you at right now? Maybe we'll start there. Great question. Uh, we launched this thing publicly in December, so I guess we're about nine months in now. Uh, kickoff is going as planned and planned for spring of 2025. Uh, we've got, uh, we're working on selling teams. As usual, we already announced Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto. We have a few markets left to sell. We've been doing the super exciting work of building the governance of the league behind the scenes, but the even more exciting work of branding. So coming up with the league name, look and feel that will be launched next year. So lots going on behind the scenes. So what needs to happen? And apart from adding four more teams, what needs to happen behind the scenes to make this a success? Uh, we're we're working on it now. The the heavy lift really is building that governance piece behind the scenes. So that's well underway with our teams. Uh, other than that, I think just we've had an incredible response from Canadians so far. I think that's been one of the most positive and surprising things about this project. And next year, we're really going to give fans something to dig their teeth into. So buying some merch, buying some tickets, getting really excited and showing their support for this league in more tangible ways. So I'm looking forward to when that happens next year. And then we'll have a great runway towards 2025. And then, as you said it, the key is teams. We're having great conversations with potential ownership groups across the country and and we're looking to line up everyone we might be talking to before the end of the year so for for Hamilton if if people want to be involved in, in bringing a team to their city now is the time to reach out Diana Matheson is an Olympic bronze medalist CEO and co-founder of Project 8 and uh, one of the uh, many who are trying to bring a professional women's soccer team to Canada. Uh, four teams, four franchises are in, four more expected to be announced before the end of this year. And when you look at Canada's national women's program, um, there are several players who play in leagues overseas, whether it's England or France, Portugal, Italy. Would be nice to keep them at home, wouldn't it? Yeah. And we have the third largest player pool in the world when it comes to girls and women in soccer. We know the incredible talent we have. There's there's stats that there's more registered players in Ontario than there are in Spain, the country that won the Women's wow. World Cup this go round, thanks in part to their strong pro league. So th this is a huge piece of the puzzle for the for us. There's 130 Canadian women playing pro right now abroad, about half of them in the U.S., half of them in Europe. So this is absolutely about keeping more of that talent at home, bringing them back home, having people like myself who spent my whole career playing abroad and then retired as an athlete. And still, there's no jobs in Canada to work in women's sport. And and that's what we're changing because, you know, Canada likes to be humble about a lot of things, but we're internationally fantastic at women's sport, and this is about building a home for us in Canada. When you're pitching this idea to people who may be interested in it, is is does the success of the women's national program feed into the discussion? Because we're already seeing the success at the highest level. Yeah, I, th I think the success of the women's national team has made this conversation possible, especially the gold medal in Tokyo. Uh, this past Women's World Cup, we were out obviously much sooner than we all wanted to be. But even from that, we had a, a huge amount of outreach come through through the World Cup and international outreach as well in regards to ownership. The 
the event is just growing so quickly that it always brings more attention to the program. So that's that's been fantastic for us. We know that the Canadian Premier League, the Men's Professional Soccer League in Canada, kicked off, well, they're in year five now. Uh, have you discussed this idea with all the owners of that league to, to gauge their interest? Yeah, our, our we've pretty much talked to uh, most people in sport has been our approach. Really, we started by looking at how women's pro leagues around the world started uh, and what would work in a Canadian market, what the business model was, what the revenues were around the world for women's soccer and what would work in a Canadian market. Uh, so lots to learn from from all of those, from the leagues in Mexico, Australia, the NWSL. And then, of course, looking at a Canadian market, what the CPL has done really well, what we're going to try and build on. Uh, and one thing they've made a huge impact on is is infrastructure, building soccer specific infrastructure, which we know is a challenge in our market. And we're going to look to follow in their footsteps and bring even more investment into soccer-specific infrastructure in this country. Got about a minute. From the corporate partnership standpoint, uh, I would assume, given the success, again, of women's soccer, uh, that there there's a lineup to, to get involved? <laughs> yeah, the timing has been good. We actually ha- we've ha- we had to slow down selling of our partnerships as we're actually building out the the asset inventory for the larger deals. So we- CIBC Air Canada on first, then Canadian Tire and DoorDash have joined as our our first four league partners. Uh, so yes, there is there is a lineup there, and that the timing is good. The timing is great to be selling this product. There's never been a better time. There's not going to be a better time. Women's professional sport is a new industry. And it's growing, uh, it's exciting, and it's it's going to be the fastest growing area of sport for the next decade. So we're looking to get Canada uh, to get involved in that market. And for the ownership too, owners in the NWSL bought in in 2012 for 150000 Their franchises are now worth between $35 million and $100 million. So it's not just the right thing to do with this project. That's not what it's about. This is this is a business we're building in Canada with incredible returns and potential right now. It's going to be exciting to see when it kicks off in just a couple of years' time. Diana, thanks for the time. Best of luck with this. Thanks so much. Diana Matheson, Olympic bronze medalist with the Canadian women's soccer team, CEO and co-founder of Project 8. And it's going to be, yeah, as I mentioned, thrilling to see professional women's soccer uh, put a flag down finally here in Canada. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A few months from now, we could be hearing this song as part of the Super Bowl halftime show because Usher has been named as the halftime show artist. Big shoes to fill as we've had some amazing halftime acts. Others, meh, not so much. How is Usher going to do? Well, that remains to be seen. What we do know is that I think it's a great choice, and I'm sure our next guest does too. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Eric, good morning. How are you? I'm good. Don't be knocking my up with people back in 1976. (laughs) Oh, they, I know that's they who brought you're the house of. down. They brought the house down, they, I'm sure. They they did. They uh they destroyed those walls. Usher is a really good choice. Usher, you know, it's funny when um when these big announcements happen, whether it's um so and so is going to be cleaning up on the Grammys or um a Super Bowl announcement is made right away. Brand new album from Usher comes out that day. Hmm. And then, of course, he's probably going to announce a North American tour. Um, but yeah, an excellent choice, though. He he has a longstanding relationship with Jay-Z, who Jay-Z is the company. Actually, his company, Rock Nation, is the one that produces the halftime show 
and had done since 2019. Um, Usher has collaborated with Jay-Z many, many times. And uh, um, Rock Nation, Jay-Z's company, is the one that brought us Shakira and Jennifer Lopez and the Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Eminem um, mashup that happened a couple of years ago. So this is going to be really, really good. Is this, would you call this a safe play? And I know that might be a, a strange question because, you know, you look at Rihanna, who was pregnant. Uh, we had the collection of rap artists a couple of years ago who I guess could have gotten a little controversial, although the, the show was pretty safe. The weekend did an amazing halftime show a few years ago. Would this fall under that kind of category? Yeah, I think so. I And I think it's also because Usher can command... Um, a very, very high ticket in Las Vegas. He is certainly one of the most popular artists to have a residency there. And Usher has had a lot of really big hits. You know, you you kind of have to go through his history that not only did he have four straight Billboard Hot 100 number one songs, but he sold over 20 million albums worldwide. He's got, you know, something like 65, 70 top 10 hits on the Billboard chart. So um, he's probably bigger than what most people realize. And I think Usher is the kind of artist where those passive fans who only stick around for the halftime show and then they go off and go do something else while you know the sports fans in their lives whether it's their husbands or wives or kids or family will go and watch the rest of the game but the halftime show gets around anywhere between 80 and 110 million people watching at any given choice um the actual super bowl is probably about 40 million so i sure it's probably one of those choices where you can't really knock it you know you may not know a lot of the songs that he might do but I bet you most people will, though. Mm-hmm. Usher being named the Super Bowl halftime show performer. The National Football League is holding the big game in Las Vegas February 11th, and we're speaking that with Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, two years in a row, and now three of the last four will be solo performances. Do you think that could become the norm going forward? I don't know if Usher is going to be that solo performance, but I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, but it's funny because Usher has his hand in so many different areas of the music industry. He actually owns a record label called the Raymond Braun Media Group. It's a joint venture with Scooter Braun, who, as of now, still manages Justin Bieber. So we actually might have Justin Bieber performing at the Super Bowl as well. Usher is also one of those very, very nice guys that you find in the music industry. So I wouldn't be surprised if he starts bringing out special guests. But he certainly doesn't need to. But then, you know, taking a look at, at you know, Rihanna or even last year's with Kendrick Lamar and Mary J. Out of those artists, Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, and Eminem could have easily headlined their own Super Bowl yeah. without having special guests on there. Um, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira, certainly they don't need to have duets. They don't need to share the stage with somebody. They're as big as any other female performer that is happening right now. So realistically, Usher can actually do the entire thing himself. It just all depends on whether or not if he's going to share the love with other people that are maybe maybe on the album mm-hmm. which he hasn't he's only announced the actual name of the record but 
he hasn't announced any of the track listings. So I wouldn't be surprised if those track listings have features or duets that those people actually start attending the Super Bowl. Well, I, I'm sure he's going to put on a phenomenal show. I'm not sure if it's going to be able to top what Rihanna did last year because that was sensational. And she was pregnant Being at the pregnant? same time. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Uh, but uh, we can't wait to watch it for sure. Eric, thanks for the time as always. Thank you so much for having me. We'll talk soon. Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator. Usher is going to be rocking the halftime show Super Bowl. What are we up to now? 58 on February 11th in Las Vegas. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.